Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my two other popular podcasts. I speak with author Owl Gornback about his award-winning Native American horror fiction at fullcontactnerd.com. And I speak with former paratrooper and Afghanistan veteran David W. Brown about his new book on NASA's Europa mission at technologyandspace.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Georgianne Burledge, editor of Living in the Shadow of a Hell Ship, the survival story of U.S. Marine George Burledge, a World War II prisoner of war of the Japanese, published by University of North Texas Press. August 27th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, um, obviously, you're, well, you're a relation of, uh, of Mr. Burledge. Um, what, tell me the story of what inspired you to, what helped you put to, uh, put this book together? Well, of course, I grew up hearing my dad's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know the details of them, but I heard, you know, I heard the basics of the stories and he used to speak to my classes. I was a history teacher, and you know, I knew the basics. Um, but he always left things out. You know, he didn't want to make it as gruesome as it could have been, I guess. Mm-hmm. And after he passed away, a friend of mine and I were cleaning out his stuff. You know, one of the sad things you have to do. Mm-hmm. I'm an only child, so it had to be me. And we found a Rubbermaid, little big tubs mm-hmm. full of writings. And um, full of things from his, his Marine Corps experiences and so forth. Mm-hmm. I knew that he was a writer. He was a journalist by trade. He was, you know, that, that was his degree he was in. Um, I, I could see him working on this legal panel, a lot, scribbling stuff. But I had no idea to the extent of things that he had written. Um, I, I kept telling him, you know, you got to write your story. you got to write your story. And he'd say, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. I'm an old man. Happened 60 years ago. No one cares. Well, after I retired from teaching, I decided I'm going to tell a story. It needs to be told. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes this book a little bit different is that it really gets into his emotions mm-hmm. and his thoughts and his, his schemings. You know, it was, it's a very personal book. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting that he, he was a journalist and yet this particular story, he, did he share any, did he write at all about World War II? Yeah. He did. Um, when he was in the Marines, you know, he he reenlisted after the war. Now, I was not born until 1955, so I don't remember any of these. Mm-hmm. But he reenlisted, and what he told me once was that he went to this, you know, commander, whoever, whatever rank, and said, I've really learned to do nothing in the Marines would be a POW and a sniper. Uh-huh. I'd like to have some kind of talent, you know, talent appraisal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they found out that he was a really good writer. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they still do it, but the Marines used to send their their, their, their their promising journalists to a school called the Naval School of Journalism okay. at Great Lakes, and it was through Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. He attended that. He graduated first in his class, and he was hired by Leatherneck Magazine. Okay. That's that the, the uh, official publication of the United States Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So he did a lot of writing for them. For, I think four years he wrote for them. He went to Korea. Wrote, wrote about the, the war correspondent, and when he was in Korea, he did go back to the Philippines mm-hmm. and write a tenth anniversary story about Corregidor and Bataan, and that's in, part of that's in the book. Mm-hmm. But he didn't he didn't focus his whole thing on that. No. You know, mm-hmm. he did PR work and features and everything. Mm-hmm. He wrote a few things, and also 
he wrote some stuff for the our local newspaper in Denton. Okay. That's about it. Okay. So, and I'll just show the book. I didn't show it before. Um, I don't know if, oh, I guess my virtual said, background. I'll show it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My virtual background is <laughs> making a mess of it. So, yeah, yeah. There it is. Um, this is a re-enlistment picture. He's uh, 28. Oh, okay. Okay. So, just looking through the book, um, obviously, it's a very personal story. You know, it starts out when, before, a, a couple of years before the war, before any of this happened, and then I guess mm -hmm. it goes through his three years of captivity, where right uh, through brutal conditions. I guess what did um, had, did you include everything he wrote, or did you? How much did you have to edit? I included most. Mm -hmm. There were some things that were, I'm gonna say, not politically correct. That's kind of you know broad, making it broad, but to say his opinions were very. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can't word this right. Um, if it were really, really negative about a certain group of people, I didn't put it in. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Though I think you know, to be to be fair, the Marine Corps was pretty uh, infused with um, anti-Japanese uh, thinking. You know, was it, yeah. that that was how they were taught to you know about them I, and to attack them. Well, I, Never blamed him for having some kind of animosity, you know, because he did go through some horrendous things. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, as he got older, he let it go. Mm -hmm. He let his anger go. Okay. And in fact, I, I, I bought a Mazda and he went, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> it was like, but it took him quite a few years, I think, to really work out the anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I say his last 30 years or so, you know, you know I say I'm over it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, mm -hmm. So he was tell not bitter. He, he, say he, he was not a bitter man. He wasn't bitter. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess in a sense, it seems like some people who weren't there seem to have more bitterness in, in some respects than the people who were there and went through it and then just said. Exactly. Hey. And he wrote about his last place where he was. He was on the hell ship and he got sent to Japan on the hell ship. Mm -hmm. And he worked in a mine way up in northern Japan. Mm hmm. And he became friends with all, all of the civilian guards there because he said they were going through exactly what he was. They were starving. Mm -hmm. They were cold. You know, they were isolated. Mm -hmm. And he began to see them as, as people. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they weren't out to get him. They were just people he was working with. Mm -hmm. I think that that also changed a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of his views. So how was he able to record his story? Just is it mostly memory for the three years and then he wrote it down or? As, yeah. He also did an oral history with the um, University of North Texas mm -hmm. in 1970, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I, I did I did use parts of that when I had a question about a fact or a date or something. Mm -hmm. I did use that. But, um, no, it was mainly writings. Mm -hmm. and his articles he wrote, he was in the Marines. Mm -hmm. And a little, bit, a little bit of what I knew. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. You, so did you add certain things that... Um... So, certain memories that he might not have written down, but he did talk the to you about. Thing I added was some things that happened in the hell ship. Mm -hmm. Can you? Th so tell me about the hell ship. What what exactly is that? You know, that's what I've been asked by more people because I had a lot of you know friends and people who are buying the book, mm -hmm. and they say we never heard of the hell ships. Mm -hmm. So I figure I kind of made my my point here. But um, can I just can I tell you why I chose the title? Then I'll go back. Sure. Okay, because I think it's kind of important. Uh, as I said, my, my dad had let it go a long time ago. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he had to go. He was very busy with my, with my kids and community and church and everything. And he lived to be over 90. And he had a he had to have surgery on a hernia. It was Thanksgiving night, eight, uh, the wrong century, 20, <laughs> 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, he never snapped out of the, of the surgery. And he was just kind of there. And one night I got called from the hospital and they said, you have to get over here. He's dying. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he's very delusional. I said, sure, you know, have to, you know. So I went over there to the hospital, and he was clawing. He was clawing in his bed, clawing, going, don't do this to me. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. Get away from me. Get away from me. Hmm. And the nurse said, what's going on? I said, he's reliving his hell ship experiences. Hmm. He spent almost 40 days in the bottom of a ship. And um, that was the last thing he ever said was, get away from me. Get away. Get away from me. Hmm. And so it was it was embedded in him somewhere. Mm-hmm. It really was embedded in him. But the hell ship was when MacArthur and his troops finally came back to the Philippines after two and a half years mm-hmm. in the fall of 44. Uh, the Japanese, you know, the, the Americans thought, hey, we're, we're, we're liberated. We're out of here. <laughs> you know? No, they took the more able bodied men. And my dad at the time weighed about 120 pounds mm-hmm. from a pre-war weight of 200 pounds. Oh, wow. He was able bodied. Yeah. Hmm. And they stuffed on the bottom of ships and took them to Japan to work. And some were taken to China, but my dad was taken to Japan. And to make matters worse, the Americans were reinvading the Philippines at the time. And so they were flying over the South China Sea to go into the Philippines. And they were bombing these ships Uh. because they they were marked as Japanese ships. They weren't marked as POW ships. Uh. And I forgot the percentage. I pulled it out. How many were killed aboard the hell ships? Oh, here we are. 55,000 were put aboard. 10,800 were killed. Wow. So a fifth of these men were killed. I have a really good friend whose dad was killed on one. And um, he was down there for 38 days. His captain decided to just go into Taiwan and stay there until it was safer to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. And that may have saved him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, they were given, the uh, Japanese put him in the hole, told Hold right, hold mm-hmm. the ship, yeah. and then they sealed it up with boards and canvas and stuff like that. And then they would lower like a bucket of water and a bucket of food. And mm-hmm. so these these men would fight over it. Yeah. And my father, being only my father, was very calculated. You know, mm-hmm. He took over the situation, figure out what to do. And he told me that he got in the corner, got in the corner of the, of the hull of the hull. I'm sorry. And he thought, well. If we get hit by a torpedo, I might be able to get out that way. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened to those who got out of these ships. <laughs> but he sat there and he said he watched it. He just watched all he could. And he didn't, because he was try- trying to stay out of the fights. Hmm. Men were attacking other men. They were so thirsty. They were drinking you know, blood. Yeah. And it was just awful. I, mean, I can't imagine. So, so, so it's called a hell ship for a reason. Yeah. And so he said when it really got bad was when they were docked in Taiwan because they, they weren't allowed off the ships. And they could hear the bombing, bombing in the in the harbor, Taiwan. I can't remember the name of the city, but um, he had a friend aboard who was a vet, mm. veterinarian. Wasn't much need for them in the prison camps, but anyway, was a veterinarian, mm. and he had smuggled morphine on board. Mm. And he and my dad said he took the morphine and broke it in half, and he said, "Here, George, let's let's just end it." And this sounds so much like my dad. I mean, I laughed when I read this sentence in his writings. He said. No, I think I'm going to stick around and see how this turns out. <laughs> that, that was my dad. He would never give up. Yeah. But they wound up in Moji, 
Moji, Japan. Mm-hmm. And that's where they, they were taken off the ships in Moji. I think they stayed in Taiwan for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Then they went to Moji, and then they started working in the mine. But you just think about the worst circumstances you could imagine. No food, no light, no water, men going crazy around you, and you're trying to stay sane. That's the hell ship. Wow, that's, yeah. It's... My friend whose dad dies, and I'm part of the book, just real quickly, um, mm-hmm. they, mo- most of the Americans got off the ships. And the Japanese machine gunned them. Wait, say, repeat that? I think I missed a part. It, it was the Arison Maru that my friend's dad was on. Uh. When it was hit, most of the Americans got out of the ship. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese had machine guns, and they were killing them. As, oh. as they came out of the water, they were killing them. As they were escaping from the sinking ship. Mm-hmm. And there were two or three who got to a lifeboat, maybe mm-hmm. four, but no more than four. And they made it to China. And mm-hmm. part, part of China was still occupied by the Allies. And these men were immediately taken to Washington, D.C. to tell what had happened. Yeah. But that's probably the first that anybody knew about the POWs, oh, what wow. was going on. Hmm. It was in the, the fall of 1944, I believe. Oh, <clears> wow. Well. Yes. I'm speaking with George Ann Burledge, editor of Living in the Shadow of a Hell Ship. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So I noticed just flipping through the book um, that uh, they did engage in some some acts of small acts of sabotage, you know, or delay. Well, you, have to, you have to get back somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, should I tell you about one of them? Sure, sure. Okay. Um my dad was in Palawan. Palawan's a very isolated island off of Luzon, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, everywhere he went except for the mine, he was building an airfield. And they never finished these airfields because they, they didn't plan to finish them, to be honest. <laughs> and so anyway, one day this uh, ship of supplies comes in. Uh, their port was called Porto Princesa. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the Japanese sent the POWs down to unload the ship for them with a the boat. And they found a case of San Miguel beer. Uh-oh. Now, my dad loves San Miguel. Mm-hmm. When I went to the Philippines, I had plenty for him. You know, it was good. <laughs> but anyway, it's a good beer, it really is. But anyway, and they began to, this is when beer had caps on it. Caps, you know, like like my water bottle here. Caps. Oh, okay. And um, they would drink one beer, put it back in the case, put the cap back on. Mm-hmm. And they worked their way through the case of the beer. Then they brought in the empty bottles to set them down and you know, have a good party. I wish we could be there with you. Dad. So the Japanese that night got ready to have their party. And one by one, they'd open the beers and go, what happened? <laughs> and they never suspected the POWs. They suspected it was a, something when it was being you know, put together back in Manila. Uh-huh. And he said it was so funny just to watch them go. <laughs> <laughs> You know, is it minor sabotage? They weren't killing anybody or hurting anybody. Just having a little bit of fun. Yeah. yeah. And they would, they ended up names for the um, 
Arts. They had Donald Duck. And he mm-hmm. said, who's Donald Duck? And they said, a famous Hollywood star. Then they, then they found out it was a duck, cartoon duck. And they were happy about that. Um, also, that they would sabotage their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had built. A, they finally finished an airfield at Las Pinas, which is near where the old Nichols Field was near Manila. In fact, it's near where the um, airport is now. Mm-hmm. And so the Japanese would have an air show, and they brought in their planes. And every time they landed, they went down like this because it was an uneven uh, field. Oh. They, were, they all went down and went crooked because the field, the, the Filipinos built half of it, Americans the other half, and they made sure it didn't meet right. <laughs> you know, there's little things to get back like that. Yeah, yeah. Things. No, it makes sense. It gives you a sense of control, I think, a little bit. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Um. well, I also think it helps the war effort, you know. Um. You can't do a whole lot, obviously, because you'll get beaten or killed. So right. I guess you just do what little you bits. They have to be kind of secret about it, kind of subtle. Right, right. But the Japanese, they taken over all these islands, you know, in the South Pacific, and they had to get they were going to build their airstrips. But I don't think anything ever got finished. Did he? Um, were Were there any parts where he encountered um, other non-American allies? British, Australian, mm-hmm. Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was some on the hell ship with him. There were two, I think, who were British, and they had been they had been bombed on another hell ship, and they survived. So the Japanese just put them on their ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, the camp, the last camp he was in, had uh, a lot of uh, they had some Scottish people in there, I know, and British. Did he get to interact with them much, or did they keep it segregated? No, they were all together. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, the only ones they segregated, he wrote, was. When they were, you know, they, the, the, the Japanese weren't expecting 60,000 people to surrender in the Philippines. Oh, they were um, Yeah, they, they, they weren't expecting that, you know, oh. because the Japanese followed the Code of Bushido, mm-hmm. which was that you fight till the death. The mm-hmm. Americans, you know, that, that wasn't what we, we did, generally. Right. And so um, they segregated the Filipinos from the Americans mm-hmm. at first. Mm-hmm. And then also when he went to his first camp, and I have to think how to say this, Cabanatuan, Cabanatuan. Mm-hmm. They segregated the Bataan people from the Corregidor people because the Corregidor people were in better shape. Mm-hmm. They, they lasted an, a, a month later. Mm-hmm. They were in a little better shape. But as far as the Americans and the British and all that, no, they didn't do that. What was he eating there? Did he write about that? What, eating? Yeah. What kind of <laughs> Whatever food? Whatever you mm-hmm. um, they, were, they were given rice. He never ate rice. <laughs> as long as I knew him, that was you know, a long time. Uh, they had rice balls, mm-hmm. a little bit of water, whatever they could find. Mm-hmm. And he said Palawan had fruit everywhere, growing wild in the Japanese garden. You can't eat the fruit, but they they managed to get the fruit somehow. But there wasn't a whole lot of protein. Mm-hmm. Some fish maybe, but not a lot of protein. Right. So they just, and um, how much, I know there was one incident mentioned where he, he got sick. Um, how often was he dealing with sickness? Uh, the only, I mean, I think he was sick probably the whole time, to be honest, but, mm-hmm. uh, when he got really, really sick and they sent him to, to Manila, um, off of Palawan, he had beriberi, which is some, some kind of vitamin deficiency disease mm-hmm. and malaria. And something about malaria, it, it comes back on you. Mm-hmm. I, mean, he, I, I can remember he'd have to go to bed sometimes because he, he didn't really have the whole blown case, but it would come back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You have to go, he was sweating it off or something. But a lot of a lot of vitamin deficiency diseases. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, did he, um, did he discuss at all how, what they were hoping would happen as far as rescue? Did they have anything in mind or were they just taking it day by day? Taking it day by day. I know they were very hopeful in the, um, when they saw that the planes come in mm-hmm. in the fall of 44, they thought it was over. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he said that they were yelling at the pilots like, Hey, you know, you, you had eggs for bacon. We had rice, you know, things like that. But after that, I think it was just like, you know, and they also found out the Japanese had a kill order. What's that? September 1st, 1945, mm-hmm. because the Japanese thought by that time, the, 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 the Americans would have invaded mm-hmm. the homeland. And they were afraid of these prisoners, these these 100-pound prisoners, you know, mm-hmm. were going to fight with Americans. And so the order would have been to just kill them all? Kill all the, yeah. And that did happen at Palawan uh. in December. And I, in fact, the anniversary, I think, was the 14th, December 14th, 1944. Mm-hmm. They thought the Americans were killed. That was on the western side of the Philippine Islands. Mm-hmm. Palawan it had been like the first place they would have gone in. And they the Japanese got word the Americans were coming, which they weren't. And they killed all the prisoners. I think eight got out. Yeah. Eight or 11 escaped. Mm-hmm. One of them was a good friend of my dad's. He lived in East Texas. One mm-hmm. of the ones who escaped. It was quite a story. Wow. And in fact, they came through our town one time. We we lived near Dallas, north, right north of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And he was begging, begging my, my father to write a story for him. And my dad said it was, he just couldn't do it. It was just too, it was just too, too close. He couldn't do it. Hmm. Now, your dad was, so I saw he was a Marine uh, mm-hmm. A master sergeant, right? Um, what, what was his rank when he was captured? He was a private, mm-hmm. but they promoted him during the war. He didn't know about it. But oh. The corporal when the war was over. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a n- nice little bonus when you come out of captivity. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. That and being ill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was his uh, his job? What was his um? What was he in the Marines before before he was captured? He was stationed. He okay, he enlisted in California. He he was from California, mm-hmm. and he finished boot camp on September first, nineteen thirty nine. That that should have been a warning right there. But anyway, <laughs> um, they you know, really they sent the Marines to a place called Cavite, C A V I T E, mm-hmm. right by Manila. It, it was a a Navy ship repair station. Mm-hmm. It's no longer there. It, it was wiped out on December eighth, nineteen forty one. It was wiped out. But um, he was an MP at Gavidi. Mm-hmm. He, he he said he, he rode a bicycle. <laughs> he was really pre-war. I mean, you know? yeah. And he kept saying it was like, like a tropical paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, they they would drink their San Miguel and mm-hmm. break up bar fights. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty cushy. Yeah. And he was supposed to do two years in the Philippines and come back and finish his term, not term, that's like prison. His enlistment <laughs> in, 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 on the mainland, and he was ready to be shipped out when, mm-hmm. uh, when they were attacked. So, okay, so he finished school on September 1st, so I guess his two years were... They were pretty much up. Yeah. Um, and then come back to the United States to finish. That kind of got stopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, are there any other significant points in the book or, or things you discussed that we haven't touched on yet that you want to point out? Well, I could talk all day. I'm a Texan. We talk. Oh, okay. Please do. <laughs> Feel free. But um, I just think one reason I wrote I I, didn't, I I wrote part of it, and the reason I edited the rest of it mm-hmm. was I just thought it was an incredible story. And mm-hmm. I, mean, I was talking to my daughter about you know I was 
writing, I was talking to one of my daughters, and I said, how do you think that people today, you know, they were isolated like that, and they were, they were um, just abandoned, which these, these men were abandoned in the Philippines, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, totally abandoned. They got no reinforcements. They only had what they had. Even their general left them. Mm-hmm. You know, adios, I'll be back someday, you know. Yeah. And we we're talking about that. And I said, how, how do you think that, like, my students would do an award a day? And she said, they, they would be t- taking selfies. Yeah. And I thought about that. You know, <laughs> they probably would, you know. Um, these men, they gave it all they had. Yeah. And they they knew it was hopeless. They knew it was hopeless. Absolutely it was hopeless. They knew it. They had no supplies. They had no reinforcements. My dad said when, on the night before Corregidor surrendered, uh, the Japanese brought in tanks. And the Americans had World War One weapons. There weren't a lot of tanks in World War One. Right. Um, as Asia especially. And they had no way to fight back. They were defenseless. Mm-hmm. Their weapons weren't even, you know, they had anti-aircraft weapons that couldn't even reach the planes. Mm-hmm. But then you kept writing this, and the stuff was that 52 planes came in and 52 planes went out. You know? huh. And, I mean, they, they, they were just, everything was stacked against them. Mm-hmm. But yet they kept fighting. It just amazes me. I mean, they just kept fighting to the end. And my dad said when he was on the beach of Corregidor, when they were surrendering, and uh, think about Corregidor, I, I went there for the um, 75th anniversary of the fall of the Philippines. It was a, a group of POW descendants. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a small island, and it's very, I think cliffs everywhere, you know, cliffs <laughs> overlooking the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was standing on those cliffs and watching the American flag come down, and he thought, well, this is it, George. Wow. I'd make a decision. And I read this in I read this in other books too, and I was doing my research. My dad said there were three categories of POWs. One one were the ones that were injured or too sick to survive. Mm-hmm. There was a group that just sat down on the beach and went, Well, forget it, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. I'll never make it. And most of them didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Then there was like my dad that said, Uh uh-uh, uh, no, 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 no. This is not gonna happen this way. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is my life, my story. Right. And I think that comes out in the book how he he fought to stay alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, he planned, he schemed, he fought, yeah. and that's what I came out with this, writing this was. I had a new. I mean, I, I always admired him. I, I knew he'd gone through a lot, but you know, it was a long time ago. He was thirty-seven when I was born. You mm-hmm. know, but just to know what he went through and never gave up—it's just it's really something. You know, it's, yeah. it's really a testament to those men. I think. Yeah. And it gives, it gives you an idea of what it takes to survive. You know, like you have to have a plan. You have to be ready to move forward. You can't, I mean, I guess there will be moments of despair, but in general, you know, you hold on and keep, keep you hold on. And he said, when he was on that beach and it was called the 92nd garage, because it was where they used to keep the trucks and stuff Hmm. on the island. And, um, it was burning hot. It's so hot in the Philippines, (laughs) burning Hmm. hot. They had one faucet for how many thousand men to drink out of. Oh wow! And they had no food. There was, they didn't know what to do. And I don't, and honestly, I don't think that the Japanese knew what to do. You know, honestly. Mm-hmm. And um, he said he looked around. He went, "Okay, George, get it together. You're, you're going to make this." And he stole a canteen of water mm-hmm. from, from a guard. And he said that gave him the courage and the hope that you know he he could do it. Mm-hmm. But the only time he almost gave up was the hell ship hmm. because he had no control over that. Yeah. I mean, a little bit where he sat in the hole or something, but he didn't have any control over that. Right. Hoping but for he, a torpedo to hit. 
Oh, he describes, it's in, there, it's in the book, just sitting there in the dark and hearing those torpedoes in that water. Oh, he could hear them. He could hear them. Oh, wow. And then he heard um, death charges getting dropped. And he thought, well, George, <laughs> I think, I think you're, you've had it now. <laughs> but yeah, he could hear the depth charges. He could hear the torpedoes. He could hear the bombs. Sometimes the bombs were so close that the, the ship he was on just shook. Mm-hmm. They thought, are we dead? Are we, did we make it? Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow, that's pretty intense. And I tell you, he had a lasting effect from the war. It really wasn't health. He, 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 he always said he would die of a stomach problem, and he did. Hmm. But he was 90-some years old, too, so, you know. But he said he was very, very claustrophobic. Afterwards? Very claustrophobic. It was from the ship. Um, He would not close blinds. We had to follow behind him, close the blinds in the house. Um, He had to fly a lot because he worked for the FAA. He did their their, uh, PR work. Okay. And he would go, (laughs) but he'd get on that plane and he'd fly, but he didn't like elevators. Hmm. He would not, he always sat in the back a theater or a church, you know. He had some little quirks like that that came from that, that experience in that ship. Wow, wow. I just want to add something. He, sure. he came back, he finished college. He had two years in when he enlisted. He, he needed money, that's why he enlisted. Hmm. He came back and finished much later than he thought he would, but he finished in 1960. Mm-hmm. And he had a master's. He earned a master's, you know. He had a good job. He always he always told me, put it behind you. you got to put things like that behind you. Mm-hmm. Go forward. You can't. If you don't, they win. Mm-hmm. And that does what that is my philosophy of life too. You yeah, know? that's a good lesson. Yeah, good advice. But you know, the whole time they were there, and this is another, I think, adds to the to the how impressive it is what they did. You don't know you're going to win. You don't know you're ever going to be released. You might be a prisoner for the rest of your life. You know, if the Japanese end up winning, and you know, like you, you don't. You can have all the confidence in the world, like yes, our side will win, but you don't know. You don't you know. know. You don't have. You don't have have a set exit. You, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people. But, but I guess no. No one really knows. Yeah. You know yeah. way. I mean, when you look back in history, you can say, "Oh wow, they only you know they could, you know, they had two years of captivity, but they didn't know that you know that that was the extent of it." You know. They they just knew that they're going to be there. He he, he wrote this somewhere. It's in the book somewhere that they knew they would either survive the war and and they they would be saved by the Americans mm-hmm. finally or they would be killed by the Japanese mm-hmm. you know be one or the other it'd be they it'd be some 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 kind of salvation from the Americans or execution mm-hmm. Japanese they they could only see two ways out mm-hmm. so when you couldn't, you couldn't escape yeah now, where not, would you go you know, my my dad had blonde hair. Oh. <laughs> the way he could have escaped, yeah. blended in. You know, you, you were just there. Was he tall as well? You said he was a, lo- a big guy, but he was a big guy, and he 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 never got any kind of clothes from the Japanese that fit him. Oh. <laughs> Always went right like below his knees or something. <laughs> oh boy, that's uh... and he would trade his food. He got he got you know they got so many rice balls, mm-hmm. and then they got so many cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Every every time I talk to somebody about this, I tell them and they go. They got cigarette rations. You know, they got cigarette rations. Hmm. And my dad never smoked. And he would trade his cigarettes for more food. Hmm. And every time he'd tell that story, someone would go, well, that was mean. And he said, well, you know, if 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 you're too whatever that you, you want to smoke instead of eat, fine, I'll take it. <laughs> you know? yeah, hey. yeah, I mean, yeah. You just have to figure out how to survive. Yeah. And they also hid 
hid people in their, in their little bunks or bungalows, whatever they had. Mm-hmm. They would hide dead prisoners so they could get their food. Oh, wow. I mean, you, you just have to do what you have to do. Wow. That's, I had never heard of that. That's intense. Well, you know, I think that's a, a trick in a lot of these situations, I think. Hmm. So let me um, let me ask about the research you did. So obviously, most much of the book is um, based on your father's um, writings that you found. But what else did you do to um, to add to the story? Where else did you go? I wrote that down. I was trying to get some notes together. Okay, um, when I submitted this to UNT Press, I, I mean, I'm not an accomplished author. I was a teacher. You know? mm-hmm. I have a degree in journalism, but I have never published anything before. Mm-hmm. And so I sent it to them blind faith. You know, I mean, I, I did make contact with them before. It's known, you know. And um, I, I knew there'd be a lot of editing to be done. I mean, I knew it. And there was. And what UNT, my editor there, wanted me to do was do more research on other POWs. And not, not individual, but types of the POWs. Because mm-hmm. the Japanese had POWs all over the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot on that. Um, you know, they had them in mines in Indo- Indonesia. They had them doing this and that. They had them building airfields. They had them in mines in China and in Korea. Um, it was all slave labor, mm-hmm. all slave labor. So I did a lot of research on that. Also on the psychological effects of being a POW. Hmm. I had to do that. You know, I was, told, I was asked. It was suggested I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, how it affects different people in different ways. Mm-hmm you know, being, being a captive. And I just did some, some basic research on, on the Philippines. I mean, the Philippines, the battles and the techniques and tactics and mm-hmm. like that. So I, I could tell the story better. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Georgian Burledge, editor of Living in the Shadow of a Hell Ship. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So, and the book has... 46 illustrations or photos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you gather those from? Okay. My grandmother, Burlidge, who I never met, by the way, she kept everything that my father sent back for the Philippines. And um, so uh, some of that stuff is of things that aren't there anymore, like like the the bases in the Philippines that got destroyed in World War I, World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, she kept every telegram. She kept the te- telegram that I, I used to read in my classes because it says, you know, uh, your son is reported missing. Mm. He, we we don't know <laughs> if he's alive or dead. Mm. And my students would go, did he make it? And I go, I'm here, aren't I? Come on. <laughs> he made it. <laughs> I was born 10 years after the war. And it but they, you know, they get into that. Mm. And I'll say this, as a, as a mother, you know, when you look at things like that, she did not know for 18 months if her son were alive. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine not knowing, you know. I don't know, but she kept everything, everything, every telegram, every letter from the War Department. She cut out clippings from her hometown paper in California, mm-hmm. and that really helped in forming the story. It mm-hmm. really helped. He got to he got to mail back. I think it was two postcards all through the war. 
whole entire ward. Mm-hmm. And there were set ones that had little checks on them. Mm-hmm. I am well. I'm not well, you know. Mm-hmm. And she kept all of that. And then also some of the photos are my dad's. Um, he When he went to the Philippines in 1952 and 1968, mm-hmm. seven, six or seven, mm-hmm. photos he took. And I found those were interesting because Baton and, and is set there in the in the same state they were when they when they fell. I mean, there had been no cleaning up. There had been no mm-hmm. no restoration. Nothing by fifty two. And then when he went back in sixty seven, that they, they had done it. Mm-hmm. And then when I went in two thousand seventeen, it was like a tourist place. Mm-hmm. You know, they had restaurants and stores and yeah. a little boat that went out there from Manila and all of that. Mm-hmm. But um, the photos are either ones that he took before the war, or he took when he went back, or when I went back. I went back when I went, period. Right. Um, do you know, did you get any information on how your grandmother reacted when she f- got that first telegram or noticed that he was alive? My cousin told me. Mm-hmm. I'm not real close to my cousins because they're all in California and I grew up in Texas, but we do Facebook and like that. Mm-hmm. So I asked her because she was born during the war. My cousin was. Mm-hmm. She's the oldest. I'm the youngest. And she said, um, that when the telegram arrived after the war, that he had sent a telegram home that he was released, but that was it. He was sent to the hospital. But anyway, when the initial telegram came that he sent back mm-hmm. to California to tell his parents, hey, I made it, that the in the, those days everything was telegrams, and they were sent out by taxis because they, they lived out in the, on a farm outside mm-hmm. Visalia, his hometown. And so the taxi driver drive, drives up. It's like in you know, Saving Private Ryan in the beginning when the mom gets the telegrams, you know. Mm-hmm. And supposedly she went out and sat on the front steps and wouldn't open the telegram. Just, oh. just, just wouldn't open it. And so this taxi driver's like, <laughs> I got one other things to do. So he said, well, Mrs. Burridge, I'll open it for you. Is that okay? He said, yeah, I have to open it. And he opened it and he just smiled and handed it to her. And it was like, <sighs> uh. But my cousin also said when he finally made it back to his hometown, she was scared of him because he was so tall and so skinny. Uh, she started screaming. Because of how unhealthy he looked? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, how long did it take for him to get back to normal weight? Knowing him, not long, but uh, <laughs> 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 he was a big man. Um, they had to do, he had, he was an outpatient for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naval Hospital in Oakland. Mm-hmm. That was the closest to his hometown is Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. But I would, I'm just guessing here. Just, I mean, looking at photos of him, mm-hmm. he married my mom in 1950 and he, he looks pretty healthy. Okay. I'd say probably this is photos three or four years. Mm-hmm. The, co- the cover on the, the, the cover photo is in 1946. You can see he's still kind of, you know, then. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. But he, he never had a weight problem. He never had, yeah, so he was a big guy. Mm-hmm. He also said that when they finally got out of the, out of the mine in Sendai and made it down to Tokyo, uh, they were, they, they found the Americans in Tokyo and they were like, oh my God, <laughs> what happened to you? Oh, I was locked up for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And um, they were told they kept any food they wanted. And he, my, my dad said he wanted milk, cold milk, hmm. cold milk. He wanted something cold. He wanted ice cream and he wanted beer. Okay. I guess I guess that beer he got in Palawan didn't last long. <laughs> so anyway, he um they, they they didn't serve beer on you know ships on military ships. So they gave him cold chocolate milk. 
mm-hmm. and you couldn't keep it down. Yeah. You drink it, he throw it up. He go, I want another one. And they go, just give me another. <laughs> because it was, he just wanted it, you know. And um, finally, they, they realized that his his you know what happens to a lot of people in starvation. His his you know shrunk. Something to shrunk. But they went to Guam. They sent them to Guam to a military hospital in Guam. And so he was there like in September, maybe mm. little October '45. And the nurses had stocked the refrigerators of ice cream. And they would let the the, uh, the guys get all the ice cream they wanted. But again, he still had to. Was he still overdoing it? Let's say. I'm sure he was. Yeah. 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 But something else. I, mean, I I I just said I talk a lot, but um, something that was not addressed with these men was PTSD. Mm-hmm. And he he would say this to me a lot. You know, he he was here. I was in Oakland in the hospital, and he'd tell doctors. He said, "You know, I went through some things that you wouldn't believe I went through." Mm-hmm. And I would like to sort some of this out. Mm-hmm. Can I, I talk to a psychologist, a counselor, somebody? And this doctor said, all you need to do is go home and get a home-cooked meal. You'll be fine. <laughs> That's a different attitude. And he was up for re-enlistment, and he wanted to finish school, but he knew he didn't have the, the he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it then. Mm-hmm. The, you know, he was restless, and you can imagine. And his mother told him, didn't tell him, but she suggested he re-enlist mm-hmm. and try to get on, on some cruises and see the world. Mm-hmm. And just because he was cheated out of a war, really, you know, he, mm-hmm. he didn't get, it was just, he was locked up for 40 months. And so he followed her advice and he was um, assigned to the USS New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he got to see, like he went to Europe, he went to the Mediterranean, you know, he saw things. And then he came back and start, started his writing career and everything went well, but... Mm-hmm. He said that that was the best advice he ever got. So did he end up spending what eight years, something like that, in the Marines? Twenty, 20 years. He did in a Marines. full twenty. Oh, okay, okay. He had already done six when he was freed. Mm-hmm. So that's like almost a third of it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So he said it just made more sense to mm-hmm. retire and get, get get some good benefits out of it. You know? mm-hmm. so, How about yeah. so? I guess he didn't have to go to Korea. He did as a combat correspondent. Oh, okay. He wrote, he wrote for the, the Marine Corps. There are different publications. Mm-hmm. So he was in Korea. Mm-hmm. But he, I asked him about that once. Um, he said he carried a, a pistol. I think he had a, he had a weapon, but he never fought. Mm-hmm. Do you know what years or when he was yeah. there? My parents married in May of 1950. Mm-hmm. It, it looked in Las Vegas. It's real, you know. <laughs> and then, um, she, my, my mom was teaching in California at the time. They met. But anyway... Um, he got sent, they, they got sent to San Diego and he was reassigned to San Diego. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, he's gone. It was the summer of 1950. Mm-hmm. He was gone like two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. But all, all that time in Korea? Yeah. Korea, then you go over to Japan, the Philippines, right? Stories mm-hmm. you know, on assignment. But, yeah. That must have been interesting for him to return to Japan, you know, as, as, as the winner, basically, you know. Yeah, well, he he was there with with the Marines, so I bet they they were the winners. <laughs> you yeah. know, I can imagine the ad, uh, attitude they had. I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, 1967, they did the this uh, the 25th anniversary of all the Philippines trip. Mm-hmm. And my dad went on it, and at that time, he had to when he got out of Dallas, we didn't have DFW yet, so he had to keep connecting all over the country <laughs> to get mm-hmm. on those. 
But um, he was on a plane not long enough with a bar that they all got pretty well intoxicated, I think. Hmm. It's a long flight over there. Yeah. And um, anyway, they got to, they had to uh, stop in Tokyo to refuel. Mm-hmm. Now, my dad claims he didn't do any of this. I don't know. But a bunch <laughs> of them got off the plane and started running through the airport yelling, Bonsai, Bonsai. <laughs> so they had to be... <laughs> They had to be dragged back on the plane and said, hey, don't do this, you know. Yeah. So when they came back, I think the flight was uh, Seattle's where it originated. Hmm. And so on the flight back, uh, they were not allowed off the plane. They had to stay on the plane oh. the whole time. A little, bit of, a little bit of anger still there. You know? Yeah. So all of them were were punished, not just the. You know, like 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 the teacher, in the, you know, what one kid cuts up and everybody has to be, you know, punished for it, you know, like that. Yeah, yeah. So, um. Okay, so he got. So I'm thinking between 53 and 59, if there was any other conflict, he might have. Um, he covered. I was real little. I don't remember. I remember he told me he had to go over and cover the Suez Canal thing. Oh, okay. That was in 58 or 59. No, we were in Hawaii then. I guess it was probably 57. See, 56, I, I forget. The After date. that, no, he was stationed in Philadelphia because that's where the um, publications office was located. Hmm, okay. The whole core, and then he went to Camp Lejeune, mm-hmm. North Carolina. I was born there. Oh, okay. And then his last one was in Hawaii. Oh, nice. We were living there and became a state. Oh, okay. I don't remember it. I don't remember it. Huh. <laughs> we moved to Texas when I was four. But, um, yeah, they, they saw a lot and did a lot. Mm-hmm. So, normally, I guess, um, I mean, people like to retire where they're going to settle down if they can if they can help it. Did he Did he want to live in Hawaii at all, or was it? Just a fun time, and then it was a fun time. You know, my mom, my mom grew up in Texas. My dad grew up in California. They were used to expanse, you know? mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> they were yeah. used to area. And, like I love Hawaii, but I I wouldn't live there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm used to being in a car and driving two or three hours, or you know, you know, it's very expensive too. Mm-hmm. And my my mom my mom grew up in the Dallas area, and she wanted to come back. So. Mm-hmm. Was he part of any um, uh, veterans associations or or any? Any, oh, my dad, my dad. Oh gosh, yes, he was a. He belonged to the Combat Correspondents Association, mm-hmm. uh, the American American Defenders of Baton and Corregidor, mm-hmm. which is now the Memorial Society. I'm, I'm an officer in it, mm-hmm. uh, but he belonged to that. Went to all the conventions. The Fourth Marines. Mm-hmm. He always made the the Fourth Marines reunion. Um, yeah, he was in quite a few. Uh, Fleet Reserve, something with the Navy. I don't know. But mm-hmm. He was. Those those are the four I remember. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you what do you think um, the fact that he came back and said hey you know maybe I should be talking to a psychologist or something that that sounds very astute of him you know what 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 in his upbringing would have given him you know the idea <laughs> nothing nothing his father was the son of a German immigrant mm-hmm. and um, very hard on very very hard on mm-hmm. uh, that was the stuff that I I edited out of his nose to be yeah. honest. How, how bad his father was to him. Wow. And um, I remember once, once my, my my dad said that now his father would have been arrested for child abuse. I don't right. know. I don't know the particulars, but, um, but no, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't think in those, those days anybody got help. Mm-hmm. You know, they would try, try to, you know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like he didn't see any stigma with talking to someone, that he was just matter of fact about it. Like, hey. Very matter of fact. Yeah, that's pretty cool. At, at least he he knew he needed help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the, the writings he did were part of that. 
uh, to kind of deal with what he went through. Hmm. When he when he, after he retired back in way past when he retired, mm-hmm. and my mother passed away. He he lived with my kids and me, mm-hmm. or we lived with him. I don't know where it worked, but anyway, we were all in the same house. Mm-hmm. And I come home from school and he'd be typing those old manual typewriters. Mm-hmm. What are you doing, Dad? Oh, nothing. <laughs> he was writing about his experiences. Is what he was doing. Huh. And some some of those writings were a paragraph, and some were pages long. I found an envelope and a book about MacArthur of all people, and he hated MacArthur. Oh, really? Oh, he hated him. And um, it was the 10 tops, 10 tops hints or suggestions to survive. Hmm. Very, I had it in the book. Very interesting. Oh, wow. Very interesting. So, you know, he's always saying to be on top of things, to look around, you know, um, be very observant, mm-hmm. take advantage of what you can, you know, things like that. I mean, I found writings everywhere. Hmm. It's interesting that he was... Um... And not like I want to psychoanalyze your dad, but he was involved with the Veterans Associations and he wrote, he was a journalist and he was writing. Do you think he wanted to eventually publish this or was it just to, just to jot it I think, down? I think it was just a, a matter of, of a release for him. Mm-hmm. He honestly thought that no one would care. Mm-hmm. He always said that. And I'd say, would you please come speak to my classes? I taught, um, I taught. AP World History. I go, mm-hmm. watch my classes. They don't care. I said, they'll care. Trust me, they'll care. Mm-hmm. So I was standing behind him going, <laughs> but yeah, they, they were wonderful. They'd ask questions. They were so interested. And he was just this old man, you know, and they were, I mean, he didn't think anybody cared. Mm-hmm. He really didn't care, you know. And I think part of that was that the treatment, the way that POWs were considered when he was appealed, you know, after, after the war. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he told me that he went home, you know, back in his hometown in the Valley of California and walked into a bar. Mm-hmm. This old panging a bar they hung out with when he was home. And he heard somebody say, it's George, he got captured. He got captured. He's a coward. And one guy even went up to him and said, hey, George, how did you let yourself get captured? <laughs> they had no understanding, no understanding. They thought that they had all just given up. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. cowards. Yeah. And I think that that always was the back of his mind. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. No respect, even even then. No. So, do you know if these were statements made by people who had not been in the military, who just sometimes they were. Yeah, they just thought they knew better of what it what what it was like. Hmm. That's uh. Wow. That's pretty bad. Well, you know, the, the, the ironic thing was during the war, his his brother was in the navy. Mm-hmm. My uncle's in the Navy, and my dad, of course, in the Marines. And both of their sisters married, they all turned 4F, you know, mm-hmm. they were turned down for the draft. Mm-hmm. They both married 4F guys during the war. Hmm. And they never got along with those men. It was pretty bad, you know. Uh, uh, you know? So what? Yeah, it must have been a time. It must have been a time, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we get we get these general statements of how people were back then but when you really dig in and you get individual stories you start to learn about the little mm-hmm. intricacies of people's people's attitudes yeah. and stuff yeah um yeah that's uh from, from what my, my mom would say she was in college during the war graduated mm-hmm. in 43 and she said of course the day after pearl harbor they had actually no men in her, in her you know in north texas mm-hmm. but also um Everybody was so patriotic and pumped up, and you know, we're gonna go fight the Germans and the uh, and the other guys. You know, they were big on the Japanese. So 
except for the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but she said it was that, that initial fervor, patriotism, we're going to go get them, and as the war kept dragging on and dragging on and dragging on, you know, that, that, that kind of went. It was just endurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I like COVID, kind of like COVID, you know. The uh, mass fatigue and all of that. Yeah. You know, you're, you're in it for so long, you just lose interest, I guess. I don't know. I but the thing about World War II is that everybody knew somebody that was in it. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I interviewed someone who studied the draft, especially in World War II, and, and she found that a lot of a lot of American men were actually trying to stay out of the war by, you know, using marriage or college, you know, that, right. you know, that a lot of them were... Yeah, they were patriotic, but they were like, let the other guy take care of it. Exactly, like Vietnam. Yeah. So, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? And I can guess the answer, but... This is enjoyable. I felt like I really got to really know my dad. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff he had never told me or shared with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm an only child. You would think I'd know everything, wouldn't you? <laughs> but um, also, I just learned a lot about about the will to live is very strong. Hmm. It's very, very strong mm-hmm. for most people. You know, um, he felt cheated. You know, he really kind of felt cheated that he missed most of the war. I mean, he had one battle, which wasn't much. Hmm. And he was just, he wanted to say he was angry or disappointed, you know. Hmm. But no matter what had happened to him, and no one could have ever predicted, you know, what, 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 what these men were going to go through. Hmm. I mean, you know, forced marches and hell ships and starvation and all that. Hmm. Never lost the will. Mm-hmm. He never gave up. And um, he wrote. He wrote about when the when he okay when he enlisted. The U.S. military didn't have much. It was a very small. There were fifteen thousand Marines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't have much for military, mm-hmm. and they had no weapons at all. It, it took, took us a year to get any kind of weapons developed. Mm-hmm. But when he, he said when he went into Tokyo when he was freed and saw this, you know, I don't know about ships. But stern to stern, whatever ships lined up in Tokyo Bay. Mm-hmm. And he thought, all oh, this has happened. <laughs> what has happened here? Mm-hmm. This is the United States. And he he often said it was like he, he was in a movie and they stopped the movie. <laughs> and he never, you know, all these things were happening, but he didn't know about them. Oh. He didn't know who the president was. Oh. Because, you know, Truman, he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had no idea what had happened. They knew nothing. And the Japanese would come in and lie to them about we had big battle in Jima. We we killed those Americans. Well, yeah, they did, but they didn't mean, you know it was a little bit worse for the Japanese. Or yeah. they they wouldn't tell the truth right. about battles and things. And of course, you know there wasn't any fighting for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. You know they, they never heard a plane. They never heard anything. And mm-hmm. just that he, he he said he had to catch up on life. Mm-hmm. He had to catch up. He didn't know what had happened. He read about all the battles and everything in World War Two and. You know, it, he just—he was just isolated, totally cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. And how he came through that so well and mm-hmm. had such a good life. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't bitter, really. You know, he just picked it up and went on. Mm-hmm. I really admire that. And to get personal, I went through a, I think everyone's, everyone's nasty, but 30 some years ago, I went through a divorce. Mm-hmm. I was devastated. It wasn't my choice. And, um, that's when I learned all about my dad and giving up. He said, don't let him win. Mm-hmm. Don't let him win. If you let him win, he will control your life. I let it go. You let it go. Hmm. Yeah. And that was just, it's such good advice. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't let someone else determine your life for you. Yeah. 
That's what he did for the Japanese. He wasn't going. He was not going to let it go. Hmm. That's good. I came out with a really strong, strong a- admiration for him. Yeah. As a person. Yeah. Not just as a father, but as a person. Mm-hmm. All, all those men too. All those men. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you find in your research that most surprised you? I came out being very angry at how that whole. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be nice about. Okay. Those men were abandoned. Mm-hmm. They were dumped. They were abandoned. And the only battle plan, and, and, and this was part, part, of, part of this background research I had to do too, was, you know, about, about the battle plan for the Philippines and all that. Mm-hmm. They were going to get them reinforcements. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Those men were doomed from the beginning. There was no no intention of saving those people or helping them out. Mm-hmm. It took six weeks for a ship to get to the Philippines. How how are they going to get them reinforcements? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, and then he had MacArthur. Oh, I know FDR told him to go, but he made a lot of mistakes before he went. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it was just so badly handled. Mm-hmm. And I just kept getting angrier and angrier about it. And the United States shouldn't couldn't do that to their abandoned people. Yeah. But they did, and only half of them lived. Mm-hmm. And that really made me angry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I don't blame you. So, what what uh, precisely was your dad mad at MacArthur about? Because he left, or was there other stuff? MacArthur didn't did not like Marines. Uh. Um, something about World War One. He thought that the Marines got to too much credit for things. Uh. In the last battle, I'm not Bell Wood or one of those last battles. Oh, Bellwood, yeah. Bellwood. There was a a large number of Marines that were killed. And they got all this credit for being courageous and brave and all this stuff. And he didn't like it. Hmm. He, he said that the, the army was not, was not given the credit it should, should get. Hmm. He was an egotist. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. He had I mean, <laughs> this pipe in his hat and, you know, yeah. and um, he also, when he left, you know, he, he, he I, I guess he had to go, I guess, you know, FDR told him to go. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a big prize to have gotten him as a, as a POW. Yeah, it would have been right. a big prize. Yeah. But um, MacArthur told Wainwright, who was the commander at Corregidor, to fight to the last man, mm-hmm. not surrender. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Wayne, Wainwright didn't do that, and he spent the, he spent the war as a POW. Mm-hmm. And um, he just didn't like MacArthur. He, he, he didn't think he was a good leader. Hmm. Interesting. He didn't think he was a good leader at all. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he he was he was more for MacArthur than he was for anybody else. You know, he was MacArthur wanted him to be publicized. You know, he wanted all the credit. Right. Hmm. Somebody well, didn't do that, but anyway. <laughs> I, I haven't read much on MacArthur, so you know, I'm I'm not going to dispute that or you know. I, no, I he was it. really. Um, I read a book, really excellent book about the the battle for Manila. I didn't know there was a battle for Manila, mm-hmm. but I man, I learned during this book, and I didn't know there was a like huge land battle mm-hmm. where the Americans came back in the Philippines yeah, and the Japanese made, made their last stand in Manila, killed hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. And, but before he left Manila, MacArthur in 1941 around Christmas, he had his Cadillac pushed into Manila Bay because he didn't want anybody to, to get his Cadillac. Yeah. You know, things like that. Just, yeah. yeah. You know, mystical. Mm-hmm. And supposedly the, the the men in battle in the Philippines would when they went to to, to the bathroom, latrine or whatever, they go, I shall return. Mm-hmm. 
you know, to, 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 because that's why he said when he left, you know, I shall return. Yeah. No, he, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's my opinion. I mean, you know. Hey, fair enough. And, and it's from it's from a, a, a personal viewpoint, you know. Mm-hmm. Was there, um, did you come across anything in the writings that you really, you didn't understand and you wanted to get an answer for to understand what your dad was talking about? And maybe it took a while before you figured it out or you still don't know and you want to figure it out. There were times that I wish that he had told more about what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe tell a bit more. Um, some of the instances that he described, some of the torture and mm-hmm. things like that. I, I guess he, he just didn't want to share it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, not really, no. Okay, okay. So obviously this is probably, a, you know, an emotional uh, work for you to, uh, uh, emotional piece for you to work on. Was there anything that really hit you emotionally, like either positive or negative? You know, you were talking about the the will to survive. Well, yeah, was, definitely that. Definitely that. Was there anything else that really, that really struck you emotionally? And I don't want you to get too. You know, I'm not trying to. No, I'm, I'm not a real emotional person, so. Okay. <laughs> I, I never realized. I don't know why. Those men totally lost their freedom. Mm-hmm. They totally lost their freedom for forty months. Mm-hmm. They were told what to do, where to go. You know, they, they had no control of their lives for 40 months. And that's what got me because um, I just can't imagine that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're put behind fences. He used to say, what's the expression we said? Well, how is life behind a barbed fence? Mm-hmm. Bar- barbed wire fence. I'll tell you about life behind a barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd start um, just to have no control over your lives. Yeah. I, I just, I just kept thinking about that. You know? Yeah, and then you have disease and 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 you know, beatings. And, and total stuff. isolation. The isolation. Yeah. I just, my dad. I know I'm rambling, but he loved That's to fine. be outside. Mm-hmm. We had a farm. I always call it a play farm. Mm-hmm. We had a farm outside our, our city, and he'd go out there and just build fences and you know things like that. And we had a beautiful yard. He'd like to be outside, and I think that was. Part of that was a, you know, a, a, from the POWs, you know, he just liked to be on his own. Mm-hmm. And he liked to be outside. And he liked to do what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have a, I just know that that was hard on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you have any, so you did mention some of the difficulties in getting the book published, but did you have any other difficulties in finishing it up or getting it published? I think I was very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. I had more or less thought, well, you know, I have a, I have some friends in my POW descendant group who wrote about their dads, and they all had to self-publish, everyone. Mm-hmm. And I met the author of that book about when Ella was talking about. I met him at a POW function, mm-hmm. and he and I were just chatting, and I said, would you have any advice about publishing a book? Mm-hmm. He said, first thing he said, he said do not self-publish. Mm-hmm. Don't do it, because you're going to have to do all the publicity. I've done a lot of that anyway, but, you know, but I have, I have guidance how to do it, mm-hmm. but you have to do everything. You have to pay to get it published. Mm-hmm. And he said, just don't do it. Just, just, if you, if you can't get a publisher, just make copies for your, for your kids, mm-hmm. but you know, like that. And so I was very, very lucky. I just thought, you know, UNT press, we, we all went to University of North Texas. Uh, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, and this author said they're a, a top publisher for for um, war history military history that's really good you know and they were wonderful 
They were wonderful. As I said before, I knew when I sent them the manuscript, um, you know, I, I initially emailed the editor and said, hey, I've done this book. And, you know, and he said, well, just send it to me, you know, please. And um, I, I, I knew it was rough. I mean, you know, it was, hmm. I, I knew there'd be a lot of changes. And there were, and everything that they asked me to do was right. You know, hmm. it turned out to be, I'm, I'm very proud of what, how it turned out. And um, it was a very smooth process. I would say that very, very smooth. They, they were wonderful to work with. Hmm. I was very lucky. Very, very lucky. I know. Good, good. Do you, are you writing anything else now or is that your one? I have ideas, but yeah. you know, this, this one was kind of like, I just, it was like you had the foundation, you had the, you know, I mean, I had some, I thought I had something really different there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because the, because the other POW books I've read are written, who are written by descendants or like, they're not real personal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're, they're not into the emotions and all that. There's, they just told what happened. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had something special. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, does, does lightning strike twice? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But, um, I have ideas, but I don't, I don't know. Okay. We'll see. Okay. We'll see. Do you have a uh, any website or anything to promote the book or Facebook? Facebook. Okay. So the the, uh, pu- the publisher's website. Yeah, the publisher's website, and you'd be surprised how many people were on, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it got published, and I thought only I would publish a book during a pandemic. <laughs> no, a lot of people did. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> I know. I'm not, I couldn't do book signings. I couldn't make appearances. <laughs> but you know. We've made it work. Mm-hmm. We made it work through Zoom. I've got a lot of civic groups. Oh, good. Book clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're friends mainly, but I've been busy with this. Um, the local paper here did a really nice article on it. Um, mm-hmm. My my dad was the editor there in the early 1960s, so mm-hmm. okay. they did it again. And, but they did a good article. Um, I did a driveway book signing. Mm-hmm. I set up on my on my driveway under a big POW flag. And oh wow! Everybody get their books signed. Nice. It went really well. Oh cool! And you just have to be imaginative. Um, mm-hmm. I you know I had green with a big book signing with wine and appetizers. And, yeah, know, yeah. Maybe over on the UNC campus or something, but mm-hmm. wasn't to be. Yeah. It had to be imaginative, but um, it sold pretty well. I mean, it's it's not going to be a top ten bestseller, and I knew that. Mm-hmm. But um, I've signed That's... a lot of books, and you know, it's it's, it's been a really good process. Is and I really wanted people to know about mainly about the hellships, but about mm-hmm. what these men went through. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people go, we had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the movie Unbroken or the book Unbroken? Um, I about think Louis, I... Louis Zaffarini and he'd been a, he'd been in the Olympics in 36 and then he got into the war and he got, oh, he right. was a, you know, he was in a plane shot down there on a raft like for 30 some days. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. And rescued by the Japanese, <laughs> rescued. You know? yeah, yeah. Well, I went to see that movie and I went by myself because I wasn't sure how, it, what kind of reaction I'd have. And I had no reaction really. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was put in a camp like my dad was in Japan. He was a minor. Mm-hmm. And um, so after the movie, as all women do immediately, they went to the, went to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> so standing in line in the bathroom, and I heard this woman behind me go, I can't believe the Japanese or whatever that mean. <laughs> I thought, hey, Georgian, how are you going to handle this one? Oh, boy. How are you going to handle that? Oh, boy. So I was very calm, and I turned around, and I said, um, my, my dad was a POW of the Japanese, and he was in a camp like Louie was in, and they were. They were. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was not a good experience, you know. They were, they were pretty cruel. Yeah. And they took me and just said, is, is he doing all right now? 
Well, he passed away in 2008, but he had a good life, yeah. Yeah. But, honey, when you're in history class, did you sleep through it? Come yeah. on, you know? Yeah. Not, they might not have taught it. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, I just hope that I, I, I I've, you know, that I may have given some new information and mm-hmm. seen something new here. I, I hope I did. Yeah, I think so. At least personally, you know, I'm not familiar with some of the stuff you mentioned. You know, I, I'm familiar with the POW experience in general, but. You know, like you say, the hell ship and other things. Um, you ask most people, and they know of a POW, they'll probably say McCain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he has a wonderful quote about how, how he has seen the worst of life and the best of life. And mm-hmm. that's a gorgeous quote. I, I use it when I do Zoom talks with people. Mm-hmm. But my dad always said that he had it much worse than, and that John McCain had it much worse than he did. Mm-hmm. Because John McCain was kept in a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, and my, my my dad worked, but he could he could find food. You know, he he was outside. He loved being outside most of the time. Mm-hmm. But McCain sat in a room yeah. alone. Yeah. So they're all varying kinds of POWs. So the, the ones in the Civil War at Andersonville or all these. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a yeah. What yeah. a story. Yeah. Korea. The ones in Korea didn't you know that that never came back. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So there there's some stories there. Yeah. I, I would never try to rate who had the worst POW oh, no. experience. <laughs> you know, it's like, I appreciate what your dad said, but, yeah. you know. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Let me make sure I wrote down some things. I think we covered all of it. Sure. Well, I just want to say that this is one man's, one man's story, mm-hmm. what he went through. And there's so many untold stories. And I guess mm-hmm. we're never going to know some of these stories. Right. Because... Most of the guys from World War II have left us. Sure. But one thing I did was my um, my POW descendants group, and they're not. This is not, it's not a big group. It's just for Platon and Corregidor. Mm-hmm. But we do a quarterly newsletter, and I wrote an article challenging other descendants to find out your father's stories or your grandfather's stories. Right. Because these stories should be told. Yeah. They should really be told. Mm-hmm. And I've asked. I had students in it. Uh, I, I make them do a project. Well, I didn't make them, but I heavily suggested. Okay, mm-hmm. they do a project on whatever ancestor they had had been in World War One or World War Two mm-hmm. when we did the World War unit. Yeah. And um, I had parents who would thank me for that because yeah. they found out things about their their ancestors they had no idea. Yeah. And like one one girl, her 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 grandmother was a nurse in Italy mm-hmm. during the war, like Anzio and all that. He they didn't know. They oh, started wow. digging for it. There are all kinds of stories that really need to be told. Mm-hmm. And I just challenge everybody to find that story. Yeah. Because that was a generation that, you know, mm-hmm. as I said, we, we would take selfies today on the beach at Normandy, you know. Yeah. And I would just, <laughs> I just like, like to get that out, you know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if you know something, share it. Yeah. Share. Yeah. Write, write an article or something. Just let us know. Mm-hmm. And, um, my dad always said that he felt forgotten by his country. Hmm. You, you begin to think, do, do they even know we're here? Mm-hmm. And um, these guys, they, they went through so much. Yeah. And their, their story should be told. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I definitely think people need to, to read this, especially the part about tips on how to survive. I think that's really, <laughs> that's really interesting. Well, he was very matter-of-fact about stuff. You know? <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. And people had asked me what the long-term result of being a POW was for my dad. Well, I didn't know him before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say anything. But um, as I said, I was born after the war was over. 
but he was the most generous man you ever met. He was so generous. Hmm. I mean, he would, you know, he'd have, he, he'd buy blankets for the homeless here in, my, in our city because he said that he knew how, how it felt to be cold because hmm. in Japan it was very, very cold. Right. Um, he worked for charities, uh, you know, he really liked like the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. He paid my, the college tuition for both my daughters, give mm-hmm. an example. Yeah. And I say, Dad, you don't have to do this. And you go, no, I'm so thankful I survived. Mm-hmm. I'm just thankful that I'm here and I can do it. Yeah. And I think that was just a wonderful thing. He, he appreciated life. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And- well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with the book. And I hope you can use something in there. So oh, thank you. Can you show the book again? I still can't get the. Um, <laughs> it goes into the palm tree. <laughs> that why? I don't know. It's just a background. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Living in the shadow of a hell ship. Thank you very much for speaking with me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.